You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. A 19-year-old prepares to become a suicide bomber in Times Square. It's impossible to pinpoint her ethnicity. We never learn why she made her decision. We don't know whom she represents or what she believes, only that she believes it absolutely. This is Day Night, Day Night, the award-winning controversial new film by director Julia Loktev. Loktev was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, immigrated to the United States with her family at age nine, and came to film through sound rather than image while DJing at an alternative radio station, making her own audio art pieces. Her 1998 documentary, Moment of Impact, is in the permanent film collection at the Museum of Modern Art. Her video works have been shown around the world. Day Night, Day Night is her first fiction feature film. Julia Loktev, welcome to film school. Hi. How are you today? Good, how are you? I'm doing real good. What's the public reaction been like to your film? Have you been to any screenings, and what's been the feedback? Sure, I've been to a few screenings, you know, here in the States um, and internationally, of course. Well, the kind of films that I like to see and the kind of film I hope I've made is one that people find different things to talk about when they see it, Mm -hmm. and not everybody feels exactly the same way about it. I think if, if everyone walks out of your movie and everyone thinks the same thing and feels the same thing, that's a boring movie. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for me, I think it's been successful in that respect. It really, some of the best things I've heard is people saying to me, you know, we went out afterwards and we talked about it all night or, you know, we're still talking about it two weeks later. I will say my reaction is you almost can't walk out of it and not want to talk about it. I know that was grammatically incorrect, but uh, you ha- you have to talk to somebody because there are just so many issues that it raises. Have you found a different reaction, sort of you said internationally, outside the United States as opposed to the United States? And generally speaking, the, the reaction been any different? Actually, it hasn't been, but one of the things that I always hear, you know, because it's played a lot of film festivals, you know, going from France yeah. to Istanbul, Jerusalem, Hong Kong, Buenos Aires, you know, all Mm. over the world. And one of the things that keeps getting asked is, what do the Americans think of this film? Because I think internationally people have this kind of imaginary American in their head who is considerably stupid than I think, (laughs) stupider than I think the average American really is, you know. So I say, no, no, no. I mean, you know, Americans, they get it too. (gasps) Yeah. Does it matter to you that a member of the, uh, somebody going to see the film knows what it's about or not know what it's about going into it. Do you think that it impacts people differently if they have no idea what they're walking in to see, or they kind of bring some some knowledge, some sort of baggage, if you will, to the film? I actually think it's a really interesting question, because when I wrote the film and when I was making it, I used to tell people the end, in the description, you uh-huh. know, and I always sort of assumed that people would read that going into the theater and they would know exactly what happens. It's a kind of strange assumption on my part because I never really care what happens in a film. Uh I don't mind spoilers. I care how something happens and how it's told cinematically. But, of course, you know, once the film was finished and the distributors came in and the publicists came in, they said, you can't tell people what happens at the end. People (laughs) don't like that. (laughs) So people have described it in different ways. You know, I know some festivals... Toronto and Telluride, a couple of the festivals, actually managed to write synopses where they didn't even mention that it's about a suicide bomber. Uh, I mean, it was incredibly yeah. mysterious what the film was about. 
And that was an interesting kind of response that we get with people walking in knowing absolutely nothing. But at the same time, I wonder if that makes it too much of a kind of trick, like surprise, surprise, you know, like crying game or something. It's not such a big reveal that she's a suicide bomber. But I also wonder, I sometimes even wonder if it's more interesting the second time around when you know exactly what happens, and then you're able to kind of watch all the details. Well, it is, as a matter yeah, of fact, because yeah. I did see it the second time around. And, yeah. and, and I like that it's, you know, it goes against the grain of what people would expect for a uh, suicide bomber movie in, in some ways, and that it, that it goes into the, the minute details, almost the mundane details. What is being eaten in, in Times Square by the bomber? The one scene that sticks in my mind, and this is going to sound funny, but but waiting at the light with the uh, direction signal going. Mm-hmm. I just love that because it slowed everything down and it brought it to me. Instead of having some dramatic mu- music in the background, it, it, it had a, a, a nice moment to think about what you, were, what you were viewing. And I think that some of those details really come out on yeah. the side. I mean, I think you're able to experience them, of course, on the first viewing. But a lot of people have said to me that on the first viewing, there's so much on the edge of their seat. And so going through this kind of very suspenseful emotional experience that sometimes I think if you're feeling too much, maybe that keeps you from thinking sometimes. I do think it's, it becomes a different movie when you're able to peel the onion a little bit. Right. Well, and as, as you have uh, spoken of in other interviews, you weren't interested in the why. You were interested in the how of this, yeah. of this character and this story. You deliberately set out to make a film in which, and we we need maybe to describe a little bit about the film in the sense that the subject of the film, she, as she's referred to in, in her as her character, she's in New York City to uh, to do uh, to strap to, on a bomb. To, to strap on a bomb, mm-hmm. she has no discernible accent. We don't know really much about her ideology. We don't know really anything about her. We don't know the circumstances. We don't have a backstory. She's there. And she's being prepped by these people to do what she's going to do. And it is watching it unfold. It's sort of this detail that you bring to the film that it's just utterly fascinating. And the one thing you do know is that she really believes exactly. she's doing something morally right. Right. This act of the, becomes kind of the biggest thing that she's going to do in her life. It's, it, it's become the purpose to her life at that mm-hmm. point. It's become all she has. Right. And to me, that's incredibly important to the film is that there is a kind of sense of faith that she starts out with, um, an absolute belief. And even though you don't know why, and I can't, I can't say that I don't find the why important. Of course it's important, it just remains outside the frame. And mm-hmm. I think that I expect an audience kind of to come in bringing a, a context to the film, you know, because my films don't exist in a vacuum. And I think too often people walk in and they kind of expect the cliff notes of what they already know anyways. They expect to be told things they already know. And I didn't want to patri- kind of patronize the audience in this way. I said, you guys know this. I mean, you've read newspapers. You can contextualize the film on your own. Right. Um, there are other sources of information for the why. But I really wanted to focus on this girl who sets out with this absolute dogmatic belief and, and examine that belief in a way. You've said you've watched a lot of Joan of Arc to portray this woman. Is there, are there any other films that you looked at? You know, the, actually, I, I do remember you saying another one is Jacques Tati's Playtime to get the uh, the crowd in New York. I thought that was fascinating. It, it's a strange connection, but yeah. yes, you know, I mean, to me, uh, Playtime is one of the most incredible portraits of an urban space Absolutely. and kind of crowd and multitudes of people interacting. So that really played a role in how we thought about 
you know, especially the sound of the city. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that because the sound is incredible, and I know you went through a, a great deal of effort to get that right. There's no musical score in this. How did you go about recording that? Well, the sound, I worked with Leslie Schatz, who did the last four Gus Van Zandt films. He's an amazing, amazing sound designer. And I actually went to L.A. to work on it, so it's strange because it's this incredible sonic portrait of New York, but done in L.A. because what happened was I actually recorded all the sound effects myself and then brought like four gigabytes of New York sound to L.A. And then Leslie and I kind of worked on constructing something like music concrete using the actual sounds that were recorded in the actual locations. I mean, everything was recorded where it was, even the stuff in the beginning when she's in a hotel room. Like, I went back to the exact same hotel room, had the actress crawl back into the same bathtub, and she did all her own ah. Foley work for that. Really? Um, also, yeah. the, the scrubbing sounds were, were Foley sounds. Uh, well, they were Foley sounds in the sense that she actually, you know, we would put the, her little DVD player, portable DVD player, she'd put it, you know, uh-huh. on the toilet next to the bathtub, get back in the bathtub and just do her own do the sound, you know, do every action. So she learned a whole new set of skills doing the movie. Well, I noticed, um, she, I noticed she was credited as a Foley. In, yeah, as a, yeah, yeah, yeah. She her. did all, I mean, all of those sounds, but we were very truthful about it. So mm-hmm. instead of kind of doing it in a studio and, you know, when we were very literal-minded, so instead of kind of faking the sound by kind of sticking our hand in a bowl of water or something, <laughs> we just had her get back in that bathtub um, mm-hmm. and do a sound take, you know, because all of the sound in the first part is mic'd extremely, extremely closely. I wanted to see how can we hear sound almost the way that she hears it inside her head. So if she's eating something, you know, how can we almost hear the sound between her jaws, how it sounds to her. And then for the Times Square part, I recorded all the sound effects and then we sculpted them with Leslie. Because, you know, when you hear things, you're not necessarily aware of it consciously, but something like bus breaks or like a low rumble somewhere creates a real mood shift. Every little sound can be used very precisely, I think. Well, anyone who's ever walked downtown in a major metropolitan city, when you hear that soundscape in the film, you, you, you immediately... Yeah. You're there. I'm, you're, you're there. You know, um, we're speaking with Julia Lacto, yeah, yeah. the writer-director of Day Night, Day Night. I was just curious, in those sounds, did you ever repeat any? Is, is there any sort of sampled repeat going on, or did you just one time with every sound? This is a personal question. Here. I mean, mostly, you know, one time, I think. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think so. I mean, we tried to, I mean, I'm trying to think if there must have been, there might have been parts where we thought the coming back of a sound. Yeah, a favorite sound. No, I mean, we really, in the, you know, we really just drew, we really didn't use any, you know, canned sound effects at all. We really drew from different details on the street, and we had so many hours to draw from. That gave a, a, a tremendous release of the tension when you went to silence too oh yeah because people got used to you know i got used to the sound in the background the ambience of the film and then to go to silence was was wonderful i love that fact and also at the very beginning of the film you you do something that at least me as a viewer you really wanted to lean forward for which was her monologue at the very beginning of the film in which she's sort of describing and rationalizing i assume in her own mind the ways that people die Mm-hmm. And sort of setting herself up, kind of guys, psyching herself into what she's about to embark on. And How did you go about writing that? Yeah. Well, that monologue was actually paraphrased from a monologue that I read about, given in a Pal- by a Palestinian suicide bomber. Okay. Uh. It was, you know, very much a paraphrased version of it, um, where I think the guy had initially said he had said something. You know, he listed different forms of deaths. You, mm-hmm. you know, he said some people get trampled by horses, some people fall off roofs. Some people die like this. Some people die like that. Mm. I have only one death. I've chosen to give my death to you. 
I took that monologue of, you know, which was a real video and rewrote it, you know, added about 20 more types of deaths, different kinds of contemporary deaths, then gave it to her. And so a lot of things in the film actually come from actual research. And some of the weirdest things in the film come from research. Well, well, for me, I was immediate. You're immediately there with her. And you know all you need to know about this character at le- to get started with what she's about to do. It pulled me in. Yeah, and it is like a prayer, you know. So we yeah. how we thought, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody isn't going to talk to, we never call it God, we call it the object of belief, let's say, kind of. The, you yeah. don't talk to your object of belief in the same way you talk to another person. Yeah. So we said it has to be a different form of speech. And so she whispers very, very fast. Yeah, yeah. We're speaking with Julia Lochtev, the writer-director of Day Night, Day Night. And you just said some of the weirdest things in the film came from research. Uh, what would be the weirdest, do you think? What would be the weirdest thing? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Well, yeah, you know. that was just... Um, no, 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 let me think about it. Because, I mean, well, for instance, you know, um, there's a scene in the film where she's trying on clothes. Um, oh, yeah. Because she, at the beginning of the film, she's dressed very conservatively, you know, covered from basically her chin down to her ankles. And so the guys decide that for the mission, she needs to be dressed in a way that she'll blend in a little more in Times Square. So they bring her all these clothes. And they have her try on kind of like a crop top and a little sweatshirt that says baby girl, you know. (laughs) And it's a little bit comical. But the truth is, you know, every story of particularly female suicide bomber that I've ever read about has this kind of strange makeover moment where the women are dressed up to blend in. For instance, I read about one girl, and she actually backed out when the organizers asked her to wear a crop top that exposed (laughs) her belly, you know, and she said they can't really be pious men. Or I read about another girl who actually, you know, her bomb failed, and she, there was an interview with her, and she talked a lot about how much she liked the way she looked in these new clothes. Like she was describing in great detail, you know, the baseball hat hat they gave her, the sunglasses, how her cap matched her cardigan, and she'd never seen herself look like this. And this is a girl who's preparing to be a suicide bomber, and she's focusing on her outfit. Which brings up something that you've also talked about, which is the, the extraordinary thing that someone's about to do, blow themselves up. And then the sort of banal nature of the things that they do, like uh, like in the, the character here, wants to eat a candied yeah. apple or a pretzel. But you talked about from your research, suicide bombers eating something. And, and right, it was a girl who she she blew up a truck bomb, but before she did that, she stopped at a market and she bought some bananas. Right. And to me, I feel like we're familiar with the story of the truck bomb, kind of. But what makes a person in that moment right. get bananas? And at the same time, that's very normal and human. You think it's weird, but then it's sort of, it is so normal. Because I think in any kind of extreme event, we tend to focus on the kind of the physical things, the things we can actually comprehend, the simple yeah. desires. And she does eat a lot in the film. But there's also such a culture of the last meal. Right. You know, whether with suicide bombers, you know, with prisoners on death row or Jesus, there's a huge thing of the last meal. And we thought, well, she's 19, you know, she's in Times Square for the first time. Wouldn't she kind of be thinking, well, maybe I could have another last meal, and well, just one more last meal. Right, right. In this film, there's a lot of ritual. There's a lot of uh, of very methodical, ritualistic things that happen, and and then, as you describe, you have this sort of last last supper. And the rituals are very simple. They're things like, you know, her cutting her nails or washing, and 
and I was asked once at a screening, somebody said something about her being obsessive-compulsive, and I said, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm like, she's not just washing her underpants for the hell of it. She's washing the underpants she plans to die in. Yeah. That's yeah. not obsessive-compulsive. <laughs> That's very purposeful. <laughs> Divided the film in two parts, preparation and action. The, the preparation part, sound-wise, was even in monaural and meant to kind of feel, I don't know, claustrophobic is a word, but it's enclosed. Where in action, you're out in Times Square. Was that purposeful, the way that you divided it up, or did it develop as you were doing the film? No, it was very much purposeful. I do like your description of claustrophobic. Yeah, Yeah, it was kind of the sonic and visual difference between the two parts of the film were very much part of the script. Like from the start, I started to envision it as these two different movies. You know, the first takes place in a vacuum, takes place in this hotel room where they're drawing up the plan, and when people make plans, plans seem simple. It's just the, the basic geometry of it. And then when she arrives in Times Square as a girl who's never, ever been to New York, has never been anywhere remotely like this, has never been to Times Square, we thought, let's really, really see if we can represent that experience of somebody arriving in Times Square for the very first time. You know, what does she see? What does she hear? What does she feel? And, of course, that's all about, you know, color and the street and messiness coming in from all sides. One thing we did that was very strange, of course, is that we did shoot the movie in the middle of a real crowd in Times yeah. Square. Yes. And um, I don't know of other movies made like that, really. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there have been, like in the 40s, there were films, what was that, that I was reading about the other day, where they snuck shots in the crowd. Well, and you're using the people on the street, uh, I think, for just about all the interaction, too, mm-hmm. including the, the, the fellow who uh, talks to her at the end and is proposing to her, in a sense. Yeah, there's a guy who comes along and hits on her on the street. I mean, yeah. Him we didn't cast on the spot. I cast him a couple days earlier, but he was actually selling his hip-hop CDs yeah. on the street in Times Square. And, you know, he did play a scene. It was a scripted scene that I gave him, but, of course, he played off of that scripted scene and, you know, made it his own. Yeah. The first part of the film, which has been described as sort of, sort of washed out color, not a lot of color in it, really. It's very sort of monotone. Was that lack of color done in post-production? It was a combination. I mean, we were very, very controlled about every single object that entered the frame. We completely changed the hotel room so that it was all in this kind of blue tonality. But then we were, you know, very aware of each little, like the color of her razor was important. And then we worked a little more to desaturate it in post, but was definitely done in the kind of production design very much. But some of the things, you know, you asked me earlier what I was looking at visually very much for that. I was looking at, you know, Melville is one of my favorite directors. Mm-hmm. So I love Le Samurai. I love Cirque Rouge, um, Army of Shadows. And those are films mm-hmm. I always think of as being shot kind of in blue and white. Mm-hmm. So we looked a lot at those. Uh, the point I was bringing up about the first part of the film uh, in this very controlled environment, you introduced just one element of doubt in that part of the film which is the part when they're describing what she's to do when she gets to Times Square. She asks about whether or not people are around or not. Whether or not yeah, she's... yeah, yeah. That was, an, that was an actual thing. That was also something I just now, now you reminded me. That was also based on something I read in a newspaper story. She asks at some point, they say, that she has to detonate it even if nobody's around. Right. Uh-huh. And, and she says, well, why should I do it with nobody's around? <laughs> well, there's sort of an expression. There's a silence. This is where some of the doubt starts to creep in. And then when she gets to the city... The uncertainty uh, starts to in, in really 
intrude on on what she's about to to do. Is that a fair thing to say about? I think that's a very fair thing to say, you know, because to me it's very much a film that, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's very much about the possibility of doubt, at least. Mm-hmm. Right. And it... At least that possibility. I certainly didn't want to make a film that was, you know, girl decides to be a suicide bomber, girl comes to Times Square sees that New Yorkers are nice and changes her mind. <laughs> yes, exactly. um, that would be a little too optimistic <laughs> and a little too simple. But oh, the film is very much about this constant back and forth yeah, of right. her conviction and doubt because that faith is everything she has. And I'm glad you're bringing it up because in a way I think it's so difficult to talk about the film because to me the most important thing about the film is the ending. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's what happens in the end and that's kind of the moral and emotional core of the film. And too often, I think, because reviewers and, you know, critics, they feel like, well, we can't discuss the end because that's a spoiler. And so not knowing how to talk about the end or the implications of the end, they end up talking only about the, like, kind of banal details, you know, that as if that is all the film is about. And I think it makes it very difficult because there is this kind of, you know, the elephant in the living room of the end. Um, and of course, we can't discuss it, but I think that there is a certain, you know, that's what really matters to me about the story. Well, let's talk about the last shot, because I really love that one. Can we? Uh, it's, it's her yeah, last... No, we can't. We can't. Yeah, we, it's, okay. her, it's her last look at things. How, how, many, uh, how, how many choices did you have at her last look at things? I love the camera work there. I love the way it's, it's bouncing around in, the, in a dark sky and comes down and catches life and follows it. Well, it's an interesting thing that you ask, because uh-huh. um, that last shot of the film, and we won't tell people exactly what happens, no. but I can talk about the last shot, because it's very abstract. It is this kind of panning of the sky and the street. It was a shot that I shot myself, and I shot it over and over and over again alone. It was the only shot that I did reshoots for. I mean, I would just go back alone and sit in Times Square and shoot, and you know, go out to shoot at night after night, um, because it's very hard to shoot the potential of something, but also the potential of nothing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's this incredible, the most <laughs> difficult shot in the entire film, even though it's probably, well, possibly the ugliest shot in the film. Oh, I don't think so. Uh, well, I, 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 I thought it was. I thought it was a fine shot. I thought it was perfect. I thought it, it, it encapsulated what was going on before. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's an, and it's a very kind of, but it's a, it's almost there's something rough about it. Yeah. Kind of like. That's what simple. made it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, thank what you. you. Yeah, what you said. Uh, the film's about is the collision of belief with a world that just won't cooperate. I want to thank you so much uh, for the film, first of all, and also for coming here on Film School. Julia Lochtef, uh, the director of Day Night, Day Night. Thank you for being here. Thank you. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at org slash filmschool.com.